Hello, and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm Michal Rahman, and each week I'm joined by my co-host David Ruddock as we dive deep into the world of Android. This is part two of our interview with Awesome, the startup founded by former members of Andy Rubin's own startup, Essential. We have CEO Jason Keats and Chief Product Officer Gary Anderson with us on the show to talk about the first product, Solana Saga. We highly recommend listening to the first episode before going through with this one. Here, we're talking mostly about the software experiences we won't get to know much about until the phone actually comes out, such as how some of Solana's Web3 features will work. We'll also be focusing a lot on how Awesome intends on handling software updates. So let's actually talk about updating Android, because during this process of the development lifecycle, it kind of glossed over where Android partners actually source AOSP and Linux from. So you don't sync directly from AOSP for the OS, from like Google's Git repositories and from kernel.org for Linux, because most OEMs actually start with the source code that's provided as part of the board support package or BSP for the particular chipset platform that a device is launching with. In this case, the awesome has announced that the Solana Saga is launching with the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 Plus, or is it Gen Plus 1? I forgot how they brand it. But it's the latest interview this morning where I was like, I genuinely cannot remember the exact order of what to say this in. <laughs> the part number is SM8475, though. It's probably easier there to refer to it that way. <laughs> I'm never sure so, if yeah. Qualcomm wants me to say that, but if you said it, I can at least acknowledge it. I'm 100% sure on every product page, they do list the part number at the bottom. Like, I okay. Google it all the time, so they do list it. When we put out our press release, they were like, you can't say the Qualcomm Snapdragon, the just Snapdragon, remove the word <laughs> They were very specific. Oh yeah, I remember they did start rebranding it like that. But yeah, uh, branding, that's a whole different thing. Uh, that's something you got to worry about after you have your product. You've done all the engineering work. So the BSP is provided by the Silicon vendor, like Qualcomm, like MediaTek, and it's given to the OEM. It contains a source code and pre-built binaries like drivers and hardware abstraction layers that's needed to get a particular version of Android with a particular version of Linux up and running on that chipset. The new Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 Plus, or whatever it's called, is launching with support for a specific version of Android, which is Android 12, and a specific version of the Linux kernel, which is, I'm pretty sure it's 5.10, which is what most current HN1 devices are launching with. So that's the first version of Android and Linux supported by the BSP. So the fork of AOSP that's actually included in the BSP is pretty close to what's in Google's upstream source code, although there's a few proprietary add-ons from Silicon vendors they're typically in the form of performance libraries that OEMs can use to like tune performance. Unlike AOSP, you know, it's not updated daily with all the latest changes from Google's internal development branches, but instead it's a snapshot of a usually slightly older tag. Engineers at some bigger Android partner companies can compile a fresh build of Android based on the latest source code that's provided to them, but you're generally going to be sticking with what's provided in the BSP. And the Linux fork that's in the BSPs used to feature a ton of out-of-tree code. But over the years, thanks to Google's generic kernel image initiative, Google significantly reduced the number of out-of-tree kernel code that ships on modern Android devices. So with the latest GKI 2.0 initiative, devices that launch with Android 12 and kernel version 5.10 or higher are supposed to ship with signed boot images that are provided and updated regularly by Google. And any additional code that needs to be added is it comes in the form of loadable kernel modules that are provided by the vendors that you need them from. So with GKI, devices on the market, like in modern devices that are shipping on the market, will have kernels that aren't too far from upstream Linux because Google has already done a lot of work to reduce the difference between each Android common kernel branch and the upstream Linux kernel branch that it's based on. So that was a lot to take in for our listeners who aren't familiar with GKI and BSPs and whatnot. 
But Jason, I wanted to ask you now and Gary about your thoughts on Google's GKI initiative, because this came out after Essential had shut down and, you know, Essential was one of the pioneers of adopting Trouble when it came out. But since GKI wasn't available at the time, I wanted to hear your thoughts now on it and how you think it'll impact your workflow. Yeah, I think the GKI initiative was what you had described, Michelle, right? There's a kernel with a bunch of stuff that was not in the main branch that was finding its way into OEMs. So at Essential, what we had done, we were taking a lot of these patches for the kernel or for that version. And there's a lot of manual work at the end of the day. Overall, the fragmentation from the kernel, like this GK initiative, I think is net positive. Like Awesome will be GKI compliant, Qualcomm is too. It lands now more on the testing side of things. So we haven't gone through that cycle yet. Uh, so that would be part of the VTS, part of the uh, whole XTS suite of things. So I'd imagine the fight against kernel fragmentation to be net positive. I think it makes it a bit easier. And in the next couple of months, we'll give you a better empirical answer on that just to, to know the overhead. But I know that getting to the point of being and having this kernel in a specific version, it's been a benefit for us. Yeah, it's a, obviously it's probably something I should have asked a couple of months from now, considering you haven't actually shipped any updates to a phone that's not shipping yet. <laughs> but based on my understanding and, and, you know, what Google has announced, it should reduce the difficulty of merging security patches to the Linux kernel and actually shipping those out onto devices. So that, of course, reduces the effort, reduces the time spent on actually doing those updates and thus will save you cost. As I mentioned before, one of the things that Essential kind of pioneered was supporting Project Treble, which I actually didn't realize this, but Project Treble was actually announced the same month that the PH1 was announced. And I actually didn't put two and two together at the time. But for those of you who don't know, Project Treble is the name of the initiative that re-architected Android to make it more modular. So with Treble, Google mandated the separation of the Android OS framework from vendor components like the hardware abstraction layers and they relegated those hardware extraction layers and other vendor components to a new separate vendor partition. And after these two components were separated, then Google defined a stable interface between the OS framework and the vendor implementation. And more importantly, Google started to guarantee that an OS version would be backward compatible with the last three versions of vendor implementations. So for example, an Android 12 OS framework is backward compatible with vendor implementations built all the way back to Android 9. So if you had an Android 9 Project Treble compatible device, theoretically, you should be able to boot an Android 12 generic system image on top of that. But the problem with Treble as it was originally designed is not for OEMs like Awesome, but it's more with the silicon vendors because they would have to support multiple combinations of OS framework versions and vendor implementations. To solve this, Google implemented what's called the Google Requirements Freeze Program, or GR for short, which ensures that vendor implementations built for, say, Android 11 are certifiable all the way up to Android 13, or three-letter versions later. So a device launching with Android 12, for example, could have a vendor implementation that was actually built for Android 11. This reduces the cost of silicon vendors to support new Android versions, but it has two downsides. The first is that new Android features that require updated HAL support like the 2G toggle in Android 12 or the flashlight LED brightness control feature in Android 13 won't be available on GRF devices because those require an updated hardware abstraction layer. And since the vendor implementation is frozen, there's no updated HALs, so there's no updated support for those features. Secondly, GRF makes it harder theoretically for an OEM to update the OS beyond what the silicon vendors provide support for. 
So for example, if a silicon vendor ships a BSP with a vendor implementation that's built for Android 11, and they provide updates to the BSP, bringing the OS version to Android 14, if an OEM wanted to update that device to Android 15 on their own, they have to undertake the difficult task of porting the vendor implementation that was built for Android 11 all the way to meeting the requirements needed for certification for Android 15. Yeah, OS update longevity is a, is a very complicated topic. Google has done a lot to reduce the engineering costs associated with that. But if you want to be the cream of the crop in today's world, which is providing OS updates for four generations and five years of security updates, it's both easier and more difficult to do so. So I wanted to ask both of you, the PH1 launched with Android 7.1 and was updated all the way to Android 10 before Essential discontinued the device and, you know, shut down. That was three major OS letter upgrades, which at the time was pretty rare in the Android space. I wanted to ask, did Treble actually make that easier to do that? Yeah, so I didn't have direct experience with this, but I asked my coworker, uh, who, whose also name is Gary, Gary Bison. So we go by Gary and Gary B. So he had some insight on that. It actually did make our integration much easier. Like Treble allowed us to pretty much refactor our code in a way that allowed us to integrate monthly security patches in a timely manner as it was fragmented closely to how AOSP was being delivered. So yeah, integrating like the kernel security patches, we were doing that manually at Essential, like I mentioned earlier. We're relying now on the GKI with Project Treble as being part of that refactored way, allowed a lot of Linux kernel updates to be really easy and eliminated that overhead to do it manually. And uh, I wanted to ask both of you, like, what are your thoughts on this new Google requirements freeze program? Like, do you think it's going to make updates easier or what are your thoughts on the limitations that I mentioned? So not sure yet. I think we'll see in the next couple of months on what that does for us as a company. So yeah, we have no thoughts at the moment. I guess for me then, you know, related to that, when you work with the Silicon vendors, what is the push and pull there as far as their support side? Like what are they concerned about versus what you consumer electronics company are concerned about in updating your product and how does that clash and how are you in sync and how is Google making that easier or harder? I'll take the low hanging fruit on that one. Most because I'm not a software engineer. The most difficult one is when, uh, you, you know, you have a specific Tam at Google, that's a technical account manager. And when they go on vacation or paternity leave, you're left sitting around waiting for someone to pick up the phone. And that, that I think is our biggest frustration when we want to make a change or we want to, we need to get clarity or something like that. And that applies to every phase of our relationship with Google, to be frank. Yeah. And uh, when you're talking about the silicon vendors, there's a lot of silicon that exists. Like there's a main processor. There's ones that are for other chipsets that might deal with like a secure element. There'll be needs that come up along the way where we find an issue as we're developing and that processor interfacing with um, some other things that create a mobile phone, right? And they essentially have a tracking system and documentation on how to do something that you need. So that whole process is known to be pretty archaic in, in the industry. So it's, it's more or less painful to reach out to a TAM, either Google TAM or a Qualcomm TAM or whoever is the technical manager for that particular third-party company that we are working with to make our device function at the end of the day uh, as a normal mobile phone. Uh, it's just more or less the systems they have in place to submitting a ticket getting it recognized, and then they have some overhead internally to kind of ping them when a ticket's been in their queue for a couple of days or, or more. So it's like dealing with an enterprise software company. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it feels very strangely like that. Uh, these companies have been around for so long that it's you know there's a lot of tribal knowledge or there's a lot of older interface systems that could be improved. This is related to GRF, and I'm not sure if you can answer this here or not. Have you announced like how long you're planning, how many generations of OS updates you're planning on supporting? Uh, you know, I could give you like a literal answer, but the real answer is we're going to go as long as we can between making sure the company's still here, you know, that right. we said it essential. It's going to be four years and the company didn't last two years beyond that. So I'm going to give you be very, very forthright and honest in my answer. And there are, like you said, there are new issues that have popped up from Google. We're going to go as long as possible. I would love to be able to say four years, but there are any number of things that could kick us in the teeth that would preclude that. Yeah, and I think our partnership with Solana kind of gives a, a more optimistic outlook on supporting this device in that type of way. I think people always have those concerns when a new company comes out. It's like, oh, how long are we going to expect security patches or software updates? A lot of the times we did it essential too was even after we closed down, we handed it off to the community and we were like, hey, go to town on supporting this device that you guys all love, right? So. I imagine us to kind of keep that as plan B, <laughs> if anything. Uh, but of course, we're very optimistic with, um, you know, the partnership that we have right now and what community that is building towards. And that'll evolve again. I think in V1, it's going to be always the enthusiasts, always the early adopters for a certain product. But V2, I think it's a, a much broader outreach. And at that time, the whole community is much different in year two as well. So. A lot of the stuff that was announced a couple of weeks ago was around the Solana mobile stack. So you saw Anatoly go up and talk about what they're building as part of their mobile initiative for their Solana ecosystem. I think it's important to note that this SMS, what they call, and not to be confused with the old school messaging <laughs> thing there, I think they did that a little bit on purpose. Uh, but it's important to note that it's in addition to the stock Android that we've been talking about this whole podcast. It just acts as a layer that enables developers and unlocks users to, to experience these new types of things that are offered by what people are making on Solana and could extend to other types of Web3 offerings. So people are worried that it's like bloatware, right? It's really something that just works behind the scenes. If anything, there's a optional Solana mobile store or DApp store, they call it, uh, for decentralized apps that people can post to where it doesn't have any fees associated with it. So that's been a hot ticket item for the past couple of years. You can see things in that space where these large uh, megacorps are taking a bit of money away from these developers and these artists and the first vertical that we'll see is in, and that people will understand are, uh, you know, in the mobile gaming space and then what NFTs offer. That said, the SMS Solana mobile stack acts as a layer on what's missing to provide like a really nice experience with these type of things that are offered. And again, what I mentioned earlier was that there was a lot of issues like in terms of user experience that I had seen firsthand. Like there's this notion of play to earn gaming. I went on it, played it, and in order for me to take advantage of the PDE, uh, what that offers, I had to leave the game, go to a website, log into my account there, add something, connect my wallet through a web portal, transact, wait for it to come into, into my inventory, go back to the game, refresh, refresh, refresh. And there was a 30 page plus document that I had to read in order to like get uh, essentially the benefits of mobile PDE gaming was is to offer. and. Initially saw that, and then when we, we got introduced to Solana, they talked about this whole streamlined process where you can be in a game, you can have a transaction signed, 
all within using the SMS stack. So it's a huge, complete game changer that I think in the initial phases of, of what Solana offers is going to be very apparent to the community initially. I think there's three major things that SMS offers. What I'd mentioned is, of course, that type of experience, but there's also a notion of this, what they call self-custody, which pretty much grants you the ability to own and control your own assets. So a lot of our ethos, again, own your privacy, own your assets. Uh, it kind of went hand in hand with what self-custody provides. They offer it in four different ways. The first one is like a secure seat derivation and signing. So it's it's just a way that you can protect your self-custody on the device and you can compare it to like how a ledger does it right now. So ledger is like this really small hardware wallet that doesn't have a really nice uh, user experience, but it's really because of the form factor and then you don't have a large screen attached to it. So having a phone, I think it was a natural progression that we saw as a company to get into. Again, I think everyone's used to the tap to pay type of use case. You go to the local supermarket, your coffee shop, anywhere. We'll see a bigger adoption of you being able to use, uh, you know, turn in that into a way to pay for goods and services, right? Using what a lot of these things uh, people are building over time. So you can imagine it's it's integration with Solana Pay, uh, what they call, and partnerships into existing wallet offerings. So you can probably import some stuff uh, into Google Wallet uh, to allow you to uh, use something with, with something that's low-hanging fruit. Like I mentioned earlier, it's like a Web3 dApp store without fees. So those fees for the smaller artists or, or gaming studios are cut pretty dramatically. And a lot of the stuff that we are building, like the SMS, can migrate from out of our Saga device, but the Saga phone itself will add a lot of security in the self-custody experience. So a lot of these features will require an OEM to integrate with the mobile secure execution environment. So things that we always talk about, like trust zones, secure elements, uh, those type of things that add that extra layer of security on a mobile device. So it's not something a user can modify or install themselves if they have like a custom ROM or go in and have so a certain amount of source. It'll be protected by these capabilities of our chipsets. The Saga will be taking advantage of a lot of these trusted UI capabilities, showing things that are completely separated from where the high-level OS, like where your apps and services normally run. What we're doing on the Saga is something completely separated and a different process that allows people to view any sensitive information on their device in a completely separated way, away from every, anything that else that's running. So it lowers the barrier of entry for building self-custody application and inevitably allows a reach to appeal to a wider non-crypto audience just because it's very clear and concise and uh, streamlined. I think the idea of a web app to communicate directly with a native mobile wallet doesn't exist right now. Uh, and that's a lot of what Saga will also provide. Uh, so you can sign and send transactions and you could see it in action today. So there's an open GitHub repository at github.com slash Solana dash mobile slash mobile wallet adapter. You guys can Google that. But uh, there's a working prototype on there that acts as a dummy wallet that developers can hook into today. But essentially in the next couple of months, that'll turn into that secure execution environment implementation. That ultimately gets rid of cumbersome Web2 logins introduced with email and password. Now all you're doing is essentially signing in with our secure execution environment way of handling in Web3. It's something that I think will excite users and the community and people to develop uh, for this type of experience, right? So having that open source type of initiative 
for a lot of the things that we are integrating into our device. And then also keeping that same spirit. I think a lot of stuff that we are building for is for a community. So you see a lot of new things that didn't exist when we're working on Essential with things like Discord, Telegram being a huge part of these experiences that we are building. Uh, it just empowers that core group of initial early adopters and those enthusiasts to really take this device into unknown territories that we're not even thinking of today. I think that's a perfect answer, Gary, that, you know, there, there's so much unknown in terms of this community that we've now become part of with Solana, this Web3 community, that there's a scenario here where there is something completely unexpected in two, three years that we can bring to market and create new opportunities for everybody through it. Yeah, that was intentionally as vague as possible. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's been so many um, phones that have promised broad community support and like, you know, we're going to be friends to enthusiasts, but a lot of times that friendship only lasts a few months or maybe until the next product. But hopefully that's exactly what we have here. That's what made this relationship with Solana so valuable. It's not like, yeah. oh, we're going to build a community and foster it with you and we'll stick to it. It's like, oh. We are joining an existing huge community. I mean, they have millions of followers and millions of active users that we're now becoming a critical part of. So that community exists and now we are joining it rather than trying to encourage people to join our community. We are building a new community in one that already exists. Yeah, right. when we were really focused on privacy as a company early on, that really resonated well with the Web3 community cared about. Like Web3 community cares about privacy and that kind of matched really well. The way we saw it is that there was, at least personally on my end, I saw a lot of engineering problems with having a mobile phone in this space. So granted that it is an additional feature to your Google Android experience that you're used to, but there's a lot of experiences that were broken, especially on mobile for all the different types of things that people want to build essentially. And having that as a mobile first, an early mover, and lots of interest from developers, uh, the community, and then, of course, VCs, right? I think we naturally gravitated towards this area. I kind of wanted to just touch upon a brief topic that I kind of like a, I have a personal interest in. So Android 13 is launching very soon, right? Like we're expecting it within a month or the public release within like the next month. But like right. it's it's been less than a year since Android 12 was released. And when Android 12 was released, a lot of outlets like The Verge noted it was it was really buggy. And, you know, they're not alone. There's a lot of community members who thought there were so many bugs in Android 12 at release. And a lot of those bugs were fixed in the first quarterly platform release that was released in December. And it's good that Google is using these quarterly platform releases to address bugs. And they're finally doing beta testing on these quarterly platform releases so that users can find and report bugs to Google. But this whole debacle with the Android 12 release and the bugginess and the, the general platform stability issues that were noted as a result of that release kind of had me started to think maybe Android development should slow down. I'm starting to think that the breakneck pace of Android development just leaves too little time for Google and OEMs to actually validate each new version. I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Do you think Android should slow down, maybe take a different development model? Let me take a high level answer to that. I think. You shouldn't move product until it's ready. We learned that at Essential within like, well, let's say within 30 days of the initial announcement, <laughs> David's like cracking up the video. Um, you know, don't ship product unless it's ready. And if it's not ready, be transparent and say, hey, look, you know, this is what we're changing. This is what's not ready. This is what is ready. We did it a couple of months ago when we said, hey, we were a little late to the party with the 8350, which is the precursor chip, which was our first choice in 2021. And we made a decision. We said, hey, 
it's a little late to be launching with a flagship of the 8350. Maybe we should go with the 8475, but it does mean a time and money hit. Let's do it. And we were very transparent with the community saying we are changing this. I wish we could have said we were switching to the 8475 specifically when we announced it, but Qualcomm's like, please don't announce you're using this chip until we've actually announced the chip, which was why we said we're switching, but didn't say it until Qualcomm announced that chip existed. But I think our community was really, really appreciative of the transparency there. And so with Android 13 or Android 12, it's not ready yet. I, I think anybody should take a step back and go, hey, you don't need to ship on September 15th. There's no edict from the government saying you have to ship on this date. It's not ready. Say it's not ready and push out. Yeah, I think moving fast or breaking things isn't what you expect from a long standing OS like Android. I also imagine some of the bugginess to be a, like a byproduct of the working climate they had, as you've seen like the shift in the normal OS release cycle from August to October. I'm personally optimistic on Google's ability to address these type of issues. They see it in public. You know, I think they're talented enough to get back on track. And I think you know, the release cycle of 13 will be a really good indication on them getting back to quote unquote normal, right? So I think in terms of integration, we didn't have any problems integrating from 11 to 12, just from that perspective. But yeah, the bugginess, no one wants a, a buggy software experience. We saw that manifest itself into their flagship devices, which also puts not a good name on, on Android in general, if the, you know, flagship phones are being released like that. But I'm generally optimistic in them getting back to normal. So with the Saga launching in early 2023, I'm sure many are wondering whether or not it'll launch with Android 12 or Android 13. And I don't really expect you to know or have an answer to that. But I do want to know your overall opinion on Android 13. If you've read anything about it or you've read Google blog posts or maybe my own blog posts on it, are there any Android 13 features you're particularly excited to bring to the Saga? Yeah, I think overall Android 13 is a good improvement from 12. I think when we were focusing on building features into the device originally, like the privacy features. We were kind of speculating on how something like the privacy dashboard could evolve and would evolve. And we really were looking to complement what they were building. So I'm really excited about seeing security and privacy being brought more to the forefront. Um, so you see that in your settings app and you have a lot more things that you're able to control. You have things like notifications and photo sharing. You see that on other OSs as well. And they're playing catch up on some things around that. Of course, the Material U, I think uh, we saw that in Android 12 being introduced and they're making more improvements around what you can customize and making the device more yours. And there's a bunch of other smaller features that I'm uh, and my team is more geeking out about in terms of like things that allow OEMs to kind of hook into more capabilities for like a certain firewall capability or a certain uh, chaining capability within the device. Again, I think what Awesome is building, it will be complementing a lot of the stuff that they're building in 13 and 12 for that matter. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we are giving the, the consumer more control of uh, will kind of go in hand in hand with what the natural progression of the OS is we should be expecting in the next couple of years. And if you're wondering what's actually shipping in Android 13, I highly recommend you check out our blog post on blog.esper.io. That is a deep dive in Android 13. I haven't updated in a few weeks, but that's because I have a massive backlog of things to add. And I'm not kidding. I feel like I could double the length of that article with how much stuff is still left to be discovered and added. And it's already absolutely massive. Not specific to Android 13, but do either of you have a fun anecdote about a challenge or a surprise in terms of updating a device? Because there's always something, right? Any good stories we can share that aren't going to put egg on anybody's face that's former essential or something? God. 
you know, I'm trying to think of what like random stuff where it came to updates. I wish JB were here to answer the question. Uh, Gary, you have any? Like, I've, I've, we had a lot of our little hardware things that made life super difficult. When anytime you have like a first build, there things go right. Up. You know, actually, here's one. Here, let me narrow it down. The pogo pins and the uh, communication protocol. How <laughs> many challenges did that present? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that was a mechanical tolerance issue more than anything. And like, it's a huge stack and the company that made the communications chip, not the pogo pins were fine, but, uh, the tolerance stack for those chips to communicate. I remember the first time I met with them, I was like, okay, so what's the, what's the tolerance on positional tolerance and angular tolerance? And they go, what? I'm like, well, it's physically impossible to perfectly align two chips on two separate devices that are held together with anything. Frankly, it doesn't even have to be made. That's why it's called a tolerance loop, because we stack up all the different tolerances between all the different components and how they're attached through this big loop. And the guy goes, I don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, well, we've never done it. We just do it in this lab and we line them up perfectly. I'm like, but you do realize that in the real world, that's not possible. He's like, oh, we haven't really thought about that before. At which point I was, you know, uh, my, my hair started turning gray on the spot. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I will never forget when the guy goes, no, they just need to be aligned. I'm like, but what tolerance? And they just didn't even like understand the words I was using. Yeah. And here's, here's a war story. I think that speaks really. So the pH one, we were guinea pigs on a lot of things on that device. So the pogo pins being one of them, the side beam being another, but there's also the camera experience with the fusion functionality of taking high contrasted images fusing them together and producing a high quality image. So I think around that, we ended up shipping a device to reviewers where that certain capabilities weren't enabled and they were getting a very, very bad experience initially, which, yeah. you know, rippled above <laughs> the community and everyone that, like noted, hey, this device, bad camera. And then not until later when we flipped that flag on and got certain updates around something like portrait mode, did our camera improve? But at that point, you know, a bad reputation is a bad reputation. So that's one of the things that we're bringing into this new device is knowing how important a mobile phone is. You have to get two things right, right? The camera experience and then the data functionality and phone calls, right? So that's uh, a lot of our time and energy is being put towards these two things in the, in the new device. Uh, so anecdote and byproduct of that anecdote, I think it, it, we should see, uh, you know, better experience there. Before you head out, Jason, I just wanted to ask, where can people follow you, your company, and, you know, where can they find your product? So you can follow me at Awesome Keats, O-S-O-M-K-E-A-T-S on Twitter, uh, and Awesome Privacy on Twitter. And if you want to buy the phone, you can buy it at SolanaMobile.com. Um, right now, it's geared towards crypto developers, so the pre-order is placed with USDC. Uh, however, we are going to open it up to the general public early this fall and well before shipping starts. And uh, Gary, where can people follow you? And of course, Jason already mentioned the company site and everything else. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I fly under the radar, us being a natural privacy company. I don't have any public handles uh, except for my Twitter, which nobody here needs to follow. Uh, it's it's outdated. I don't keep up with it. And it is certainly a weird thing to be like, I'm a privacy company, but it's still a company that needs to sell a thing and make money. <laughs> so we do need to be a little public. And like, I'm constantly trying to balance my public and private lives. And uh, at times it is kind of odd. Well, thank you both for uh, joining this public podcast to talk about your uh, privacy focused product. Awesome. Well, thanks for having <laughs> us. It's great to finally be on the chat with you, Bishal. I know we've been talking for years. 
wonderful to meet you, David. And I'm going to run, grab some water, hit the restroom, and then get on a call with lawyers in one minute. And that's Android Advice for this week. Remember, if you're looking for a partner to help you get set up with not just hardware, but software for all the devices that make your business work, come talk to us at Esper. We can help you shape our Android distro called Foundation to suit your needs and forget having to worry about software updates too. Find us at esper.io. We'll be more than happy to chat with you. And we'll see you all on the next episode of Android Bytes.